0: 945! Out of the box!
1: Out of the box! box. Meet people through their music. Out of the box with Joey Watson.
2: On FBI 94.5. Hello,
3: FBI radio listener, Joey Watson here. I am very excited to be hosting Out of the Box for the first time today. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and talk through stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Sitting across from me is Serge Negus, who has steered the -the out-of-the-box ship for almost two (laughs) years. In that time, he's chatted with an incredible selection of people, the rapper Briggs to journalist Jan Fran to Anthony Albanese, MP. His radio life continues now at Triple J, where he produces Hack. But there's more to Serge than radio. In his short years, he's been a wildlife ambassador, child actor, skateboard fiend, Italian football (laughs) hooligan and the survivor of a life-threatening injury, just to name a few.
1: Serge? Welcome back to Out of the Box. Mate, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and very weird being on the other side of the mic for sure. Yeah, how
3: how does it feel? I mean, was it a, was it a tough decision to to give it up? I, I already feel definitely. emotionally attached to this <laughs> uh, microphone uh, what all of
1: 2 minutes into my first program. <laughs> no, it was definitely definitely hard to give up. You it's such a special place FBI and I mean, for me it came to this point where I was just had too much work going on working you know a, a big job at a Triple J and then it just was got yeah I just I just had to hand it on but I mean that's the essence of of what this radio station is all about. It's about young people coming in and, and I guess cutting their teeth in, in making radio um, with a, such a lovely group of people and then passing the buck and, and yeah, it's it feels weird but it feels great to, to be a part of this station for so long and, and, and yeah, having the opportunity to present such an amazing show.
3: Yeah, I mean you've almost, you've fallen almost completely into radio, I mean in addition to FBI you've produced a suite of shows at the ABC, I mean Hack's just the latest. Is Is there something drawing you to the form or is it more of an accident that this is the style of
1: journalism you've ended up producing? Well, it was actually like FBI that really, really pushed me into the direction. I mean, like I just came out of university and was struggling to to get any full-time work within journalism um, and I loved FBI and, and tried to get myself involved I Had a few friends that were here and I came on board, you know, producing on mornings with Alex Pie, and then, you know, did some shows for, uh, all the best. And then, um, also back chat and kind of just slowly work my way into it. Um, and then kind of got the opportunity to host this and it was really, yeah, FBI and the community here is, is what has driven it. It, it really has been the driving force behind my passion for radio. And I always had this idea of, of wanting to get into hack and producing hack and, I mean, I wouldn't have got there if it wasn't for FBI, so th- I have so much that I owe this station. It's, it's an incredible place. That's pretty special.
3: How did you go choosing your
1: records today? I mean, it's something you ask uh, one person to do every week, uh, harder than you realize? I actually didn't think about it when I was hosting the show how hard it actually is to try and pick, you know, five or six tracks that you love and that try and paint a certain picture and you don't know whether to go kind of like, you know, songs that people will like and think are cool or just songs that mean something to you. It was so hard, and I still f- will walk away from this feeling like there were songs I missed that I wish I'd played, and then <laughs> I'm not sure about the ones I do play. But anyway, it'll give you a little bit of a soundbite to, to my life in some sort of way. Well, with that in mind, what would you like to play for us first? Yeah, so we'll play Go- Ghost Gums by Bad Dreams first. And these guys, for me, like uh, they just represent this like yeah very Aussie pub rock kind of sound. Like I-, I love kind of grungy rock music, and these guys, I feel like, are a kind of neo-Aussie grunge kind of pub rock vibe, And, and but it talks about the Aussie bush, which I'm so concerned connected connected to. I grew up in the bush and it just really paints a vivid picture of what it's like to be Australian, I think. And uh, yeah, I love them. They're great.
0: All my best moves Send with everything into and out
3: of The Box on FBI Radio that was Bad Dreams and Ghost Gums from Adelaide the first track of your once host and now guest Serge Negus who I get the pleasure of rolling through stories with today Serge let's go right back to the beginning the mm-hmm. day of your birth yes. if you will How did a boy from the north coast of New South Wales with, to my knowledge, no no Slavic heritage,
1: (laughs) end up with the name Serge or Sergei? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, basically the morning I was born, I was was a home birth, like in a tree house in Bellingen. Sounds ridiculous, I know. And um, (laughs) at the time, like my dad, he was um, about to do a trip from Vladivostok to Moscow, which is, you know, however many thousand kilometers. Like it's the most eastern point in Russia to the most western point, basically. And the day I was born, um, my dad had to fly straight to Sydney um, to interview the Russian ambassador for Australia at the time. Um, There was basically two flights a day from Coffs Harbour in 1990. There was was one in the morning at 8 a.m., lucky I was born at six, and then there was one in the evening at like six o'clock. And anyway, dad flies down there, he interviews the Russian ambassador about this trip that he's about to go do. Um, And then at the end of the interview, he says to the Russian ambassador, oh, you know, today was an extra special day for me. My second son was born and the ambassador goes, oh, no, no way. That's amazing. He's like, yeah, now I've got to go to the airport and wait for six hours for my connecting flight to fly for an hour back up to Bellingen to go see him. And the Russian ambassador goes, no, no way. We're going to, we're going to fly you in the private Russian (laughs) consulate jet right now and we'll fly you up there straight away so you don't have to wait around. And my dad was like, "Oh my god, that's that's an amazing offer." But I like you can't land jets on the runway in Kofs. Harbour. It's too small at this point in time. Like they can only support propeller planes. And the Russian ambassador goes, "No, nah, it's okay. We have an ex-Soviet fighter pilot who's driving the plane, and he could <laughs> land it on the beach." And my dad was like, "Oh, okay, fair enough. There you go." And then the next minute they're getting drunk on vodka on the plane as as you do, and calling my mum from the plane phone, um, spitballing name ideas. And and at the time, like Russia was still the USSR. And the president was Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. And basically the first name that they came up with was Sergeyevich. They call my mum from the plane phone, pissed on vodka, and they're like, okay, let's let's call him Sergeyevich. And mum's just like, no way, Sergeyevich, that's ridiculous. Hangs up. 10 minutes later, even more drunk, they call back. All right, all right, we got it. We'll call him Mikhail, after Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. And mum's just like, Mikhail, everyone will just call him Michael, that's stupid. Hangs up again. <laughs> 10 minutes later, almost about to land, they've got the name, they come back and they're like, okay. Serge in English, Sergey in Russian, Sergey in French, Sergio in Spanish, Sergio in Italian. Multicultural name, and there you go. Then they landed, and and he came and saw me, and and I'm Serge. There you go. Un-
3: <laughs> unbelievable. I I just I can't believe the image for the good people of Belenjin as a Soviet fighter pilot <laughs> <laughs> in the final moments of the Cold War descends yeah. on onto a beach. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the invasion <you're> finally here. <laughs>
1: it's like that, isn't it? I haven't <laughs> thought
3: about like that. Tell me, Serge, what was it like? Uh, growing up in Bellingen?
1: Bellingen's amazing. I mean, like, Bellingen just instilled in me just the deepest, deepest passion for the environment and nature and animals. And, you know, growing up in a a treehouse in the bush, the impact it has on you is just wild. And it's an interesting place, Bellingen, because it's got this weird mix of kind of like, you know, these hippies that were actually kind of like just, I guess, anarchists in some sort of way that didn't want to attach themselves to society. And there's a bit of an underclass there and there's rednecks. And it's like, it's quite an intense place. And... You know, like I, I, grew up there, and I had this amazing, you know, life in the bush. But I also got, you know, bullied severely at high school, like head dunked in toilets and all this kind of crazy stuff. So it had this kind of intense, very country-like, rural vibe to it, but also just this inherent beauty and, uh, and natural landscape that just would blow anyone's mind. So, I mean, yeah, it was a very interesting childhood for me, for sure. That's interesting. what can can you tell me, like being
3: bullied at school what, mm. what, what was it about I mean in, in that countercultural environment what was yeah. it about you that made you vulnerable to uh, well, to those sorts of attitudes
1: I don't know it was uh, I mean it was it, the society in the country town it's very clicky and you know the, the social hierarchies are so solid and, and, and if you aren't at the top of that kind of social hierarchy you just get the shit kicked out of you basically like and and, and it's funny because like I've, I had like very close friends of mine that, you know, used to come out to my house and have dinners and, and hang out with me, that then at school would bully the shit out of me. And they've all, like, a few of them have come to me since and, like, apologized profusely about the bullying. And, and interestingly, where it came from for, for, for a lot of them was not from themselves. It actually came from their parents and uh, actually kind of ratting about our family. Like, you know, it was, like I had one friend who was like, dude, I, I didn't actually want to bully you, but my dad was constantly giving your family shit because I'd go out to your house and you guys would cook me nice dinners. And... He's like, you shouldn't be going out there and being cooked nice dinners, you yeah, know, blah, 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 blah. Like really weird kind of, um, I guess, sort of a projection of a social hierarchy within kind of even the adult world, I guess, where a lot of their kind of, um, I guess, prejudices were kind of projected onto the kids, which then projected them onto me. And uh, it was, yeah, it was bizarre.
3: Yeah, wow. I, w- I want to ask you briefly uh, about your, your father, who's mm. a renowned Australian journalist um, uh, George Negus. Mm, mm. Uh, were, you, were you aware of having a, a, a famous father when you were growing up?
1: Did that influence you in some way? Um, I mean, not really. Like, I mean, I was aware, but like, we live such a normal family life that, you know, to me, they, it, w- it just wasn't any different. You know, my dad, if anyone meets him or has met him, like, he is as normal a person as you'll ever get. And I think because of that and the way that mum and dad brought us up to be part of a community and to always just see people for who they are, it it just was just totally normal. Like there was no impact. I mean, like, like he, he's not like a a celebrity in the sense he's, he was a journalist, which I think maybe creates a bit of a distinction. Like I think it might've been different if he was an actor or, you know, something like that, but, but there's something I think that comes with being a journalist where you, you just, you have to be very good with people and with your own people skills and and you're not going to shy away from the public eye in many ways but people look at you in a different way to what they would look at a celebrity that's an actor or you know whatever it may be um because you provide information rather than providing entertainment i guess i don't know that's the only way i can analyze it (laughs) what are you going to play for us now Serge? um this is a song by eminem called infinite that is i think the like the best rap of all time for me. It's so incredible. It's one of the older ones. And I mean, just listen to it, it'll blow your mind. He's rhyming in this.
4: Oh, yeah, it's like, it's like this. Seminar, Back up in their motherfucking ass. One time for your motherfucking mind. We represent the 313. You know what I'm saying? They don't know shit about this. For the 9 6. Hey, yo. My pen and paper cause a chain reaction to so get your brain relaxing. A zodiac and maniac in action. A brainiac effect, son. You mainly lack attraction. You look insane whack With just a fraction of my tracks run. My rhyming skills got you climbing hills. I travel through your mind until your spine like siren drills. I'm climbing grills of roaches with spray to disinfect and twist an X of rappers to this final column disconnect With this index, inject the monologue. Turn your system up. Twist them up and indulge in the marijuana smog. This is the for noise, pollution, contamination, examination of more cartoons than animation. My lamination of narration. Hits a snare and a track for duck rapper interrogation. When I declare invasion, there ain't no time to be staring and I turn the stage into a barren wasteland. I'm infinite. You heard the hell well I was sent from it. I went to it, surfing a sentence for murder and instruments. Now I'm trying to repent from it. But when I hear the beat, I'm tempted to make another attempt at it. I'm infinite. Vince. I got some meat to mix Food is stomping into feet to rinse I greet the tens of ladies I spoil your loyal fans I foil your plans to leave fluids leaking like oil bands My coil hands around this microphone are lethal One thought in my cerebral Walk around and catch all the venereal diseases My thesis is smashed stereo to pieces My acapella releases classic masterpieces Through telekinesis It eases you mentally, gently, sentimentally, instrumentally With entity, dementally, meant to be infinite You heard the hell while well, I was sick for me. I went to it serving a sentence for murder. and I've been clever ever since my residence was hesitant to do some shit that represents the MO. Assuming all responsibility, cause there's a monster willing me that always wants to kill him, cheese Mike Kessler, slamming like a wrestler Here to make a mess of a Lyric smuggling and bezzler, no one is specialer My skill is intergalactical I get cynical, active the fool Then I send it fool back to school I never backed to tool, It wasn't practical, I'd rather let a tactical tactful, tractical You fancy, in fact I can't see or can't imagine A man who ain't a lover, a beats of a fan of scratching So this is for my family the kid who had a cameo on my last hand Plus the man who never had a plan B Be all you can be Cause once you make an instant hit I'm sensitive to and tempted. When I see the sins my friends commit I'm infinite You heard the hell while well, I was sent for me. I went to it serving a sentence For murder and instruments Now I'm trying to repent from it But when I hear the beat I'm tempted to make another attempt at it I'm infinite You heard the hell while well, I was sent for me. I went to it serving a sentence For murder and instruments Now I'm trying to repent for me.
3: Serge, one of the defining passions of your life has been reptiles, Yeah, uh, an obsession which has
1: taken you all over the world. How did it start? Well, growing up in Bellingen, my mum was like, you know, there are snakes around, we live on a river, there's red bellies around, you know, you need to learn how to look out for these things and what to do when they're around. and there was a local, um, you know, zookeeper out in Coffs Harbour when there was a zoo there back in the day, who you know had a had a massive passion for reptiles, and Mum got her to come out and basically teach us how to to look out for snakes and also to catch snakes when we were very young, um, as a way of basically being safe from them, like originally, um, but then. Being in this area that has so much amazing wildlife and so many amazing snakes, I mean, like growing up in the country, there's certainly certain things you can do to entertain yourself. You know, there wasn't a cinema nearby, you know, you know there was surfing, there was, you know, like, you know, like canoeing in the river and, and for me, snake catching and frog <laughs> catching. And, and I mean, it sounds like such a weird hobby. Like, you know, I go, I go driving at night on roads looking for snakes on hot nights. It's, it seems so bizarre. How old were you when you started catching snakes? Oh, that's God, the first snake I would have caught, I would have been maybe around f- 6 or so. I oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: That's it. In- that's incredible. Yeah, nothing H- too how crazy. does a 6-year-old catch a snake? Well, I, 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 can, can you actually take me through the process? Uh-
1: <laughs> well, it depends. It depends on what sort of species it is. Obviously, you go about it a different way. Uh, I mean, for me now with non kind of um, dangerously venomous snakes and um, you know, pythons and things like that, like I actually do a lot of free handling with them now where like I do this process where like you basically let the snake know that you're there and you let it know that you're not there in a dangerous way. So I'll I'll actually go down to a snake that's crawling along the ground and I put my hand right up to its face and let it basically smell me with its tongue. And it'll move around me and then I'll put my hand over it again, just in front of it. And then eventually it will realise that I'm no threat and it actually will then crawl over my hand and then I just kind of pick it up and and play with it. And it's a a really interesting thing. It's a lot lot about energy because snakes, like, if you are scared and if you feel threatening to it, they will freak out. But otherwise that you, you can free handle a, a wild snake pretty easily. Like there are some species that are just bonkers, like your Eastern Browns and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of them, if you, if you approach them the right way, you can, you can very much free handle them. And it's like when you see those Pentecostal Christians in, in the South of America, freehandling free handling diamondback rattlesnakes and stuff like that, these psycho venomous snakes and not being bitten. And what it's about, it's about the energy that these people are putting off to those animals. The, the animals just don't feel threatened. And so they just are calm. It's bizarre. And, and I mean, obviously with certain venomous species, like you you never can do that and you just got to grab them by the tail, basically, like if you're relocating them and, and whatnot. But yeah, it, it's... It's an interesting process for sure. Incredible, uh, and, and so this passion for
3: reptiles, you end up uh, working during school holidays at a wildlife yeah. sanctuary in Gosford. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so the Gosford Reptile Park, I, I used to volunteer there, like you know from a very young age. Um, and the guys there are just incredible. Like they're so talented and so passionate about conservation, and you know they they run this venom room there, which is the the, the biggest anti venom um kind of milking place in Australia, where they basically they've got guys in there who every day day in day out what they do is just milk venomous snakes to make anti-venom like incredible stuff and these guys like no one even knows what they do and how dangerous that job is you know and so i got the opportunity to be around these places and really work with professionals on a conservation level from within the park but also like on a you know health level trying to save people's lives by creating anti-venom so I was very lucky in that regard yeah wow and uh, eventually you reach a stage where snakes aren't enough
3: <laughs> they don't they don't satisfy uh, yeah, your re- reptile life so you know yeah. for want of a better term we 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 become serge negus uh, crocodile hunter
4: yeah
1: well. uh,
3: t- tell me about how that started
1: yeah, well, I mean, crocs naturally, like, it, you become kind of more drawn to them the more you get into reptiles. And I had, th- there's a guy called Graeme Webb who's, like, the world's leading crocodile scientist who, who's up in the Northern Territory. And he basically single-handedly saved saltwater crocodiles from extinction in Australia. Because in the 70s, it was down to, like, you know, less than a few hundred of them in the wild. And he created this thing called ranching, which basically, like, the reason they were getting killed is because of the trade in their skins for bags by Hermes and stuff like this. And he went, we need to give them a monetary value outside of the wild, like, the wild, so that... You know, we have an incentive to protect them in the wild. So, you create farming. And some people would hate this on a conservation level, but because, you know, they're creating a farming industry where these animals are being killed to make handbags. But if it wasn't for that industry, there would not be wild crocodiles in Australia. And so, it's this balancing act on a conservation level that you have to kind of sometimes, I guess, you know, give up. Um, You know, the life of certain animals farmed for wildlife living in the wild you know um so yeah i got to go up there and, and run around and, and jump on the back of a few very big crocodiles you know five 5.3 meter crocs oh. You're catching those sort of <laughs> things is pretty crazy like with a bunch of blokes you know 12 guys top jaw ropes crocs going crazy in a tiny little confined space it's it's definitely something i'd highly recommend someone doing if you can get a chance to go jump on a big croc like that it's exhilarating
3: uh, i want to ask you uh particularly about uh uh, one particular f- uh, freshie that you were asked oh. to catch in in East Arnhem Land, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell
1: me about that? So I was I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with the the traditional owners um, between kind of Kakadu and uh, West Arnhem Land, and and I went out to a, a zone out there called Baby Dreaming with with a local crew. Um, and this outstation was, you know, like a few hundred Ks from kind of Jabiru, which is in Kakadu, um, into Arnhem Land. And we went out there to go try and find these snakes called Oll pythons, which are like one of the rarest snakes in the world. And we get out to this outstation and I'm there with, um, these, these two guys and a girl and they had their like grandma out there who was like 86 years old and she's living in the middle of nowhere and she had a beard and she was just this amazing old indigenous woman. And we get out there and she goes like ah, you're, you're that, you're that crocodile guy, you know, you're that, you're like the croco- crocodile hunter, aren't you? You know, you, you, you want to come out here and catch all these snakes and crocodiles? I was like, yeah, yeah. And she goes, well, uh, you got to go out and catch me a croc to eat tonight for dinner. And I was like, what? I like laughed it <laughs> off. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? She's like, no, no, no. I'm like, no, seriously. Like, I I want a crocodile to eat for dinner tonight, and I looked at like you know her her like you know grandchildren, and I was like, is she serious? And they're like, no, she's she's deadly serious. We need to do this. And I was like, how do you expect me to do that? You know, I don't have a crocodile. I don't have any of the gear to go out and catch. She's like, oh, you know, just go get a freshie. That's a bit easy. And I was like, no, nope, that's true. It's definitely easy to go catch a freshie that is salty. Thank you for that. <laughs> and she gave me a cast net. She goes, you just get a cast net, throw it over, it, and you grab it by the tail and you pull it out. And then she just starts cacking up and laughing. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. At This point it's getting towards dark, so we go to this billabong. And we get in there and we have this cast net and basically you use a spotlight and we're spotlighting the, the freshies and you can see their eyes shine like in the spotlight. And then through this, you know, th- through this cast it over this crock, pulled it in. It was, wasn't a big one, you know, it was maybe like a metre long, took it back. Um did actually, yeah had to had to kill it first and then went back to the old lady and she grabbed it off me and within a second had lifted it up onto a hook that was hanging off this little shanty shack and just skinned it like as quick as you could possibly imagine, cut the thing up and just straight on the straight on the hot coals. just like uh, like never seen someone skin an animal as quickly as this old 86 year old. Lady out in the middle of Arnhem Land, did it was yeah, wild, unbelievable. Wild.
3: Is is it a what does crocodile taste like? Is well, it this a, is the thing. Cause sorry, the, the, any um, vegetarian or vegan listeners might might want to um go and pour themselves <laughs> a cup of tea right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. So like when you when most people have croc, they get get it from farms and stuff like that, right? Which they the diet that they have when they're in farms is pretty rank. So like you know, it's a very different taste to getting a croc in the wild because the natural diet has an impact on the on the flavour of the meat. And so I mean, I don't like it. It's very much like a kind of more gamey chicken. I'm I'm not into it, but the wild stuff's all right. It's manageable. What are you
3: gonna play for us now, Serge?
1: Um, I'm gonna play Garpu by Yothu Yindi. I mean, this track just like, yeah, it's just so Australian and so Northern Australian for me. It just sounds like what my trips are like up to non-territory that I've been doing for the, the whole of my life.
3: track was Gapur by Yothu Yindi, pushed onto the FBI radio airwaves by my out-of-the-box guest and former host in a miraculous transformation, (laughs) Serge Negus. Serge, when you were 10, Mm. your parents uh, moved you and your brother to Italy. Mm -hmm. This was uh, for your father to write a book. Was that an exciting prospect for you at the time, two years living in Italy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was coming from the bush, so I was a bit wigged out by the idea, to be honest. But, like, when, you, when you're when you that young, you kind of just adapt very quickly. And, you know, I went to, went to local school, learnt the language. Like, I went to local school without having any Italian and just had to figure it out, which is actually, like, when you're a kid, an amazing way to learn. Um, but, yeah, it was, I mean, the, the thing that I found most interesting about Italy when I was there was... There is a very interesting kind of way in which you're perceived as a foreigner over there. You know, like if if you're a foreigner, you're what is referred to as a "straniero," which means a stranger. And there is no difference between a "straniero" from Australia and a "straniero" from Africa or wherever. They they literally look at anyone who is foreign as you know, kind of lesser in society. It's re- it's really interesting. For me, I, I didn't have to deal with it so much because I was young enough. But my brother. Got really socially ostracised to the point where he left the high school and he went to you know um, to do homeschooling, and the only thing that he had kind of connected with and the only group of people that he connected with um, were these f- soccer fans for Fiorentina, and because he loved going to the matches and it's a very exciting theatrical kind of experience when you're in the crowd there. And and my brother got involved um, in a hooligan firm called um, the Collettivo Autónomo Violà, <laughs> and it's basically like I mean. Everything you could imagine out of Green Street Hooligans, it, it is literally <laughs> like that. And they brought him in because they saw him going to the games and they're like, what's this kid doing here, going here by himself? And, you know, like, you know, th- this is an opportunity for us to basically, you know, get some new young recruits pretty much. And so me and my so brother... So you're,
3: you're, you're about nine, nine or 10 years old, yeah. and your brother's a couple of years older than yeah. you?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And he's going to the games by himself, for what, as a 12-year-old? Yeah. With And then would take me along and they we go on away games and, and different things like this and we basically got roped into to doing what was, I mean, it was criminal activity in the sense that like we, I had this, they called me La Bombetta, which means like the little bomb because they'd use me because I was so young uh, to go into the stadium and take in flares and metal poles and different things that they could then take off me once we got on there to basically go bash people and, and to create <laughs> havoc. And you know, at the time I was so young and I didn't really see anything wrong with it. It was all just exciting and, and and fun. And, 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 you know, but we were going on these buses that were Dutch ovened. Um, and there was like, you know, speed being passed around on CDs and stuff. And like to us, it was all just fun and flare ups for, for football. But like in actual fact, it was deeply concerning. Like my parents didn't even know about this yet. Like they, they still don't know that we were going to games. They thought innocently to just be fans of football and actually being roped into, you know, g- giant kind of melee's in the street with police and getting shot with like you know water cannons and you know wearing bandanas and taking kind of weapons into stadiums and and doing all this sort of stuff. It was it was mental. And after we left, like we there was the last away game we went to at the San Siro in Milan like I took in all these these flares and different things and we're throwing them on the pitch and throwing big bungers on the pitch and blowing holes in it like Fiorentina ended up actually getting fined like you know fifteen euro for for basically like the damage that the fans did to the to the field this is the club that you were supporting yeah 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 and um after it like the clubhouse like we, we we went back to Australia within months of that happening and then we when we came back and visited and went and saw our friends that were in the firm we went into the, the, the firm's clubhouse and there's these pictures on the wall, like grainy CCTV pictures of my brother and I with bandanas over our face and I'm like, the cops came in here and they were looking for you guys because they knew the, you were the ones that were throwing bungs on the field and blowing holes in it and they were like, who are they? Where are these kids? We know we know that they're with you. And they're like, oh, they're the Australians. They've got home. There's nothing you could do. And They lo- they love the fact that these <laughs> cops had come in there and tried to find me my brother that were, you know, these kids running around doing stupid shit. like. Yeah, mental. Incredible.
3: That's quite a a two year year journey away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) An unexpected life experience. Yeah,
1: definitely, definitely.
3: What would you like to play off the back of that one?
1: Um, Look, I mean, this has no relevance whatsoever to to that story, but it's just the National is pretty much my most favorite band ever. I love them. And Demons is just a song that is, like, you know, short enough, but also lovely enough. So, yeah, chuck it on.
3: That was Demons by the National brought on to Out of the Box by Serge Negus, who once host, now guest uh, on his last ever uh, Out of the Box today, <laughs> handing over the reins to me, which I'm very excited about. Serge, when you were in primary school, your parents spotted an ad in a local paper looking for a boy to play Paul Hogan's son in the third installment of the Crocodile Dundee franchise and thought you should give it a go. Were (laughs) you
1: into acting up to that stage? No, no, no. And they actually didn't tell me that they were doing this, but they basically made a video of me at my house in Bellingen running around with my pet blue tongue and pet snakes and, you know, just doing stuff in the bush and made me, like, act out this scene that they said that they were sending to my grandfather in Adelaide for, like, a Christmas present and basically completely lied to me and tricked me into doing this audition tape and we're like yeah yeah we're just sending it to your grandfather yada yada um you know we'll just video you with the snakes blah 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 but actually they were sending it in as an audition tape and and then they got a call back saying yeah you know we'd we'd love to actually audition him and then mum pulled me aside and was like hey lamb so you know that video that we made like to send to your grandfather like um i was actually an audition for you know this movie crocodile d and like they want you to go to sydney and audition for it they're gonna fly us down there and I was like, why would I want to do that? Like, I grew up pretty much without movies or TV. I, all I watched was David Attenborough. Like, I, ne- I never really w- had any kind of, uh, you know, kind of really access to, to big feature films and those sort of things. So, no, I didn't want to act at all. Um, and then mum was like, well, the reason why you'd want to do it is because you'll make some money for it. And you'll make enough money to be able to go to Madagascar, which is where I'd always wanted to go to run around and catch chameleons and snakes and all these different sorts of things. And so I was like, oh, Okay if I make enough money to go to Madagascar, then I guess that makes perfect sense then. So went to Sydney and, and, and got um, interviewed for the role or audition for the role. And, you know, the director was there and he he left the audition to then go to Melbourne. He's like, I've got to go, you know, audition to other people in Melbourne and then we'll know what we're going to do. And at this point they've, they've interviewed like thousands of kids and, and just couldn't find the right one. And he drives away in his limo to go to the airport. And mum was chatting to someone at the kind of the audition place. And, um, Five minutes later, the the limo pulled back up, and they're like, "No, nah, we're not going to go to Melbourne anymore. We've made the decision. Like, you you've got the role, basically." And so, yeah, then I then I basically spent about sort of seven weeks in LA and seven weeks in the Gold Coast shooting Crocodile Dundee, which is pretty ridiculous.
3: Did you did you have to be pulled out of school for it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I had to be homes, homeschooled for that period of time, and I I went to a Steiner school. So, um, finding a, a teacher that can teach kind of Steiner and <laughs> homeschooled is is quite difficult, but. Um, one of my mum's friends did it and, and came around with me and it was awesome. It was a great experience. You know? Yeah, you remember enjoying it as as, yeah, as a child. Yeah. Like you
3: look back on it fondly now.
1: D- definitely, P- P- the whole crew just made it so lovely for me. Every, like I made so many friends, like with, with the crew members, and they they just they really cared for me. And it, it was yeah definitely a positive experience for sure. I want to ask you uh,
3: specifically about an encounter that you had with none other than former boxer, now pop culture icon, Mike Tyson, when you were shooting in LA. Can you tell me about that?
1: This story is so ridiculous. So we were shooting a scene in LA um, across from the Hollywood Hotel in in this park with Mike Tyson, where we basically bumped into him in the the park and he was meditating. And we tried to figure out what he was doing. and, And basically there's this scene where... Hogues and I meditate with Mike Tyson, which is very ridiculous considering how much of a psycho he is. And like the idea was that he's meditating to be less of a psycho kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, And uh, anyway, before, before the shoot, we're we're on the way to the park and I was kind of walking ahead on the footpath um, from our kind of caravan type things. And, Tyson was maybe a hundred meters behind me. And I started to cross this road to get to the park. And I just hear this black like, thunderous like sha like <laughs> stop, like Mike Tyson shouting at me and sprinting down the footpath, just directly at me. And I'm like halfway across the road. And I'd see Mike Tyson, this giant, massive human, psycho guy who bit someone's ear off, just sprinting at me and I'm kind of frozen. I'm like, what, what the hell is he doing? he gets onto the road and he, he grabs me and starts, like, shielding me from cars, like, like putting his hand out, and, like, to, to fend off the cars. But it was a green light. So the cars were already stopped. But in his kind of cooked head, he was like, I need to get out there and protect this young kid from these cars. And so, yeah, I mean, Mike Tyson, I thought, was about to kill me, but in fact he was trying to protect me from oncoming traffic that was already stopped. <laughs>
3: Unbelievable. And, and did, the, did that scene make the cut? Was, was no, because that Tyson... wasn't a scene.
1: That was, that was just walking to the actual like, you know, location to oh, shoot.
3: Oh, no, I, I mean the, the, the meditative oh, scene. Oh, yeah, is yeah, that,
1: yeah. Mike Tyson is in the film. Yep, he is in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's us sitting in the park meditating together, which is, yeah, pretty, pretty bloody novel.
3: Incredible. Have you brought yourself to, to watch the film as an
1: adult? You know what? I haven't. Um, and for a very long time now, friends of ours have always spoken about getting together someday and sitting down and like smoking some weed and, <laughs> and watching that <laughs> film because I reckon it'd be very funny, but no, I haven't watched it in like 10 years, I don't reckon.
3: Uh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, I should mention that the, the uh, said trip to Madagascar, it, it did, it did come on. Yeah.
1: So I went as soon as I finished shooting, basically. Like I went for, for a month with my mum and, and we just traveled around Madagascar Yeah, catching snakes and chameleons and seeing lemurs. I mean, it is the most incredible country. I I want to try and get back there as as soon as I can, really, because it's been a long time. Like, I mean, that was... Close to twenty years ago now,
3: and can I ask you uh, quickly about the you discovered a, a very rare species of chameleon? Well,
1: rediscovered, yeah. There was there was a, a species of chameleon that I found there that, that I like. And this is how obsessed I was with, with these animals is that I knew this species from a, a drawing because there'd only ever been one found that it was described by um, in like nineteen seventy, and it hadn't been seen since. And like I managed to find the second one of this species ever ever seen. Um, which is pretty pretty mind blowing. It's not, not something you get to do every day. Is, is basically rediscover a, a species of animal. So yeah. My
3: goodness. From Paul Hogan's son to <laughs> real life explorer. Yeah. 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 yeah in yeah. the wilderness of Madagascar.
1: <laughs> what are you going to play for us now, Serge? Um. So I'm going to play "Lithium" by Nirvana. I mean, I love Nirvana. I love a lot of grunge music. And this song, like, is probably I'd say the happiest of all Nirvana songs. So yeah, just a uh, cracker. <laughs>
5: I'm so happy, cause today from found my friends, they in my head, I'm so ugly, that's okay, cause so are you, look on me, Sunday morning, everyday for all I care, and I'm not scared, not my candles, in our days, cause I found God, That's okay, cause so are you. Broke on me is Sunday morning. It's every day for all I care. And I'm not scared, by my candles. In our days, cause I found God in
3: Nirvana and Lithium, and you're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Joey Watson, and I am now hosting the program, taking over from my guest, who is Serge Neger, sitting in the chair across from me. Serge, when you were 22, this is about six or seven years ago, you had a skateboarding accident that would radically change your perspective on life. Can you tell me what happened?
1: Yeah. So I, I'd i been kind of, I got to this point, like 22 is an interesting age. Like, you know, you kind of, like, I, I, I did feel very invincible at this point in time. Like I was living life very fast and I was, you know, I was skating around a lot and had got to this point where I like was pushing it, doing ridiculous hill bombing and stuff like that. And getting to the point where I'm like, I couldn't find a steep enough hill and couldn't go fast enough and, but kept going, oh, I should probably get a helmet or, you know, start being a bit more serious about this rather than doing it just, you know, helmetless and shirtless and just really dangerously. And, um, basically there's there's this hill, um, in Mossman that I skated down, um, that comes off of Warbur Street, the big one that goes down to Balmoral and basically, i was I'd, I'd basically i was there with the, with my ex-girlfriend and we were down at the beach and and you know it was like coming back from the beach i was like hey do you want to like you know like watch me skate this hill like you know like and this was actually before we even fully got together we'd, we'd been to get like you know cooked up for a few months and and this was like the first time we'd actually kind of like stayed together and um she was like yeah sure i'll take a photo and goes down the bottom of the hill and I skated down the hill and I I don't know, like I just, something happened and I mean, I don't obviously remember any of it, but I came off my skateboard um, and like basically shattered the whole left hand side of my skull. Um, And we entered into this state called cerebral agitation, which is basically where like I was not knocked out. I was like conscious, but I was a zombie. So I basically didn't know what I was doing or where I was and you couldn't see any wound from the outside. Like my head looked kind of fine. Um, and you know, like my ex-girlfriend comes up and she's like, oh my God, are you okay? And I was like, what am I doing with you? And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, like, why am, why am I with you? Like, I don't quite understand why, why you're here. Like, I know who you are, but you know, like w- w- what what's happening? She's like, well, you came with your skateboard. And I'm like, but why am I with you? And she's like, well, you slept at my house last night. And I was like, uh, wh- what, really? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, why? And she's like, well, we've been seeing each other. I was like, really? No way. Like. And just had no recollection of why I was there, who who she was, why we were together. It was bizarre. And obviously this is all the stuff that she's told me, the way I was acting. So anyway, she drives me back to her house and I'm basically like a a goldfish. Like I would be in the car and I'd be like, my head hurts, my ear hurts, my ear hurts. Oh, what happened to me? And she's like, you fell off your skateboard. I was like, oh, okay. And I'd be like, oh, my my head, my ear hurts. Oh, what happened to me? She's like, you fell off your skateboard. So I was just repeating myself and forgetting everything, like the minute it was told to me. She gets me back to the house, and her dad just goes, "Just get him to the hospital now." We got to the hospital, and basically, like I was in the the kind of the, the emergency room, and the doctors, because I didn't have any uh, any wounds on the outside of my head, like they kind of dismissed me and just thought that I was like a drunk kid on a, on a kind of Sunday who you know got pissed and fell off a skateboard and whatever. But I started to act more and more erratically, you know, in the ER and like this, like my ex-girlfriend, like who, you know, we'd only been together for a little while. Like, you know, she's in this confronting position where I'm acting like a freak. Like I'm, I'm trying to like kiss her and telling her I love her, then like crying. And she, basically she kept going to the doctors, like this is very weird. There's something not right here. And so for ages I was just sat there and I was actually dying. That's what was going on. I was dying. Uh, There's this bleed on my brain there was this pressure and I was dying. And, She then eventually got one doctor's attention. The doctor came over and like shined a torch in my eyes and then just everyone freaked out because she realized what was going on. And then the whole atmosphere in the ER changed and I got rushed off um, into a room to get like a CT scan and um, my ex got put into a room, like room basically and she was waiting there not knowing what's going on and... The first thing she hears is like a nurse comes in and goes to her, oh, like, how are you going? Like, I'm so sorry. And she goes, so sorry about what? And then she like thought I'd died. Like she, cause they didn't tell her anything. And then the nurse goes, oh, sorry, I've said too much. I'll go get a doctor. And so she sits, sits there for like five minutes thinking that like I've died. Um, and then anyway, like they eventually they come in and like, look, like we're, we're gonna have to operate like with his skull, We've, you know, this is like big surgery. Like we need need to get him in there now. My parents at this point in time are rushing to hospital. My dad's flying from the Northern Territory. He was, he was up there at um Gama festival. And I go into, go into surgery for like 12 hours or something something like that, and, and basically they saved my life um, and got out of it. And the doctors were like, oh, you know, like it was all successful. We've replaced his skull with this titanium alloy plastic kind of mold, um, and he's all good. And then like maybe a few hours after that, after they'd done a checkup, they come back to my parents and they're like, oh, look, we're very sorry about this, but we kind of fucked up we left a surgical instrument inside his head. So we have to go back in and get it out. So after, you know, this all freak out and like, you know, a relief that I'd come out of the surgery and survived, I then had to put me back in and open me back up again. Um, and yeah, then I ended up, you know, in, in an induced coma for a couple of days and then, you yeah, know, but recovered very quickly, surprisingly, like the doctors basically said that like, they've never released someone from hospital so quickly after such a traumatic brain injury. And so there was all these things that kind of did go my way, I guess, but yeah, I mean, Wild, wild experience, basically dying, I guess.
3: How how does an experience like that change your perspective on life?
1: Well, for me, it slowed me down. Like, it just made me think a bit more about everything that I'm doing. I know it sounds so cliche, but, like, it really did. Like, I even stopped driving as fast, you know, and I just, yeah, just started to actually think more consciously about every action, not just when it came to doing risky things, but also just in life in general. It made me a bit more considerate, I'd, I'd say. Um But, yeah, I mean... Still, it still affects me now, you know, I lost, lost my sense of smell, so I can't smell anything. And I lost about like, you know, um, 50% of taste. And so food for me is not necessarily a nice process now. Um, you know, I, like I, I don't get much, I don't get hungry very often because like you lose your appetite when you lose your, your taste and stuff like this. So it's had like, you know, some, some negative impacts. But, you know, I, I could have en- ended up with like permanent brain fluid leakage from my ears and like I could have ended up a vegetable. Like, you know, I, I literally am so lucky basically.
3: What are you going to play us out with, Serge?
1: Yeah, so this track is an interesting one. So I reckon the best band name ever. They're called The Brothers Grimm and The Blue Murders. And um, they're basically this uh, rockabilly kind of band from Melbourne. And this track's just this rolling kind of song that just like, I I don't know, like, I I don't know why I love it so much. I don't ever listen to rockabilly any other time. It's just this one song that just brings me so much emotion. And it's, yeah, it's called This Fearful Sea. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. It's a weird one.